Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Hello, it is August 20th, 2022. My name is David Obelts. I am the Chief Content Officer for Malcontent News. Thank you for joining the Russia-Ukraine War Update podcast. So glad to have you with us today. We're going to be talking about how Russia is having serious problems in recruiting troops to fight in Ukraine. We're then going to talk about the apparent assassination of Daria Dugina. And then finally, going to be talking about why Russia can't win the war in Ukraine. Number four. Let's start with our review of what's happened in Ukraine over the last week. This is for the period of August 14 through August 20. We'll start in Kharkiv. The line of conflict, northwest, north, northeast, and southeast of Kharkiv, is frozen. Ukraine has started to hand off some of the defense to Territorial Guard. We believe that has likely stopped. There were some gains that Russian forces started to make when this handover was happening. We're seeing that Ukraine is taking that territory back. Uh, we're seeing mentions of units like Kraken Group fighting in that area. So we think that that stopped. Pro-Ukrainian, pro-Russian claims about different settlements being captured don't indicate a shift of momentum in either direction because, again, this is a frozen front. And Russia continues its terror attacks on Kharkiv, killing dozens over the last weeks in numerous missile strikes. Next, we're going to go to Izum. Ukraine's biggest success story is the one that almost no one is talking about, and that is happening both south and west of Izum. Pro-Russian accounts, Wagner Group, and our contacts in the region all reported that Azum itself was shelled by Ukrainian artillery. This has led to Russian forces starting to push back. They've launched a limited offensive starting on August 18. They're finding success moving through the wooded areas around settlements. They're contesting some settlements that Ukraine has recently captured. One of the challenges for both Russia and Ukraine is Grunts with guns take territory and grunts with guns hold territory. There's not enough grunts with guns. And particularly for Russian forces, there is a big issue with not enough soldiers on that Azum axis. Wagner Group, the mercenary organization, is doing most of the fighting and they don't do frontline duty. So LNR and DNR conscripts are largely the ones being put into place to hold these defensive lines. They're ill-trained, they're ill-equipped, and they're incapable of doing this. Ukraine is securing fire control over the forested areas west of Azum. Special operation forces have been very active in that region since May. Russians hate that area. Troops that get deployed in that region have a nickname for it. They call it Sherwood Forest. And That is not meant to be a term of endearment. They do not see themselves as Robin Hood. Let's talk about now what's happening in northeast Donetsk. Russia tested Ukrainian defenses earlier this week. They launched a series of attacks towards Seversk in three different directions. They weren't successful. LNR leadership, Luhansk People's Republic, made a false claim earlier this week that Seversk was surrounded. This is the second such claim they've made in the last six weeks. 
Ukrainian defenses are very effective on the Luhansk Donetsk administrative border because in some places, those defenses were built eight years ago. Efforts are focused on advancing from Berestova and Belorivka. Russia just doesn't have enough combat strength in this area to be effective, and the Ukrainian defenses are well prepared. Another thing that we're seeing is Russia lacks the quantity of tanks and experienced crews to cross the sparsely populated open country in this area. And artillery combat power is on parity in this area. Ukraine has fewer artillery pieces, but the pieces they have have greater accuracy, greater range, and better firepower. So although they are firing a less number of shells, the shells that they are firing are hitting more targets. They're getting more warheads on foreheads. Uh, next, I want to move to what's happening around Bakhmut. Terrorists with the Imperial Legion of Russia, private military company Wagner Group, Luhansk People's Republic, and some Russian VDV troops can't assemble more than company-sized attacks, so no more than 250 soldiers in this area. Ukraine defenses are very strong in Solidar and Bakhmut. Both cities were home to Soviet-era military bases, so there are bunker networks and defenses that were established going back to the Cold War. LNR leaders have repeatedly made false claims of success in an attempt to boost morale. The 6th Cossack Tank Regiment has been making, quote-unquote, great progress in Solidar all week. Yet videos released by Russian state media that we've geolocated show the unit isn't even in Solidar. They're about two and a half kilometers to the east of it. This is an area where there is concentrated artillery fire, but it's not at the same level that we saw in the Luhansk Oblast in the areas like Severodonetsk back in June. Keep moving through Ukraine. We'll now look at what's happening in the South Donbass and Zafrojaya. The DNR offensive west of Donetsk has fizzled out. We are a long way from the claims made on August 6th that Kamyanka, Avdivka, Pisky and Marinka were down to mop-up operations. Donetsk People's Republic soldiers had military control of Pisky for 24 to 36 hours. Ukraine retook the northern part on August 18th and 19th, and overnight they pushed them even further out. And right now, Pisky is considered to be contested, the entire settlement. The DNR advanced to the center of Marinka on August 18, and they were pushed out of the center the next day. Both sides are suffering terrible losses. They are throwing hundreds of soldiers a day into this region. Ukraine is significantly outgunned. This is the area where there is artillery advantage of 10 to 1. Russia has used white phosphorus. We've seen video of uh, not thermite of white phosphorus munitions. They've used TOS-1 thermobaric weapons. They've used mine-clearing systems as offensive weapons. They have brought in army attack-grade weapons into this little village, these little areas here, and it's not moving the needle. Again, grunts with guns take territory, and grunts with guns hold territory. The Nanets People's Republic doesn't have enough grunts with guns, and the Russian Federation will not dedicate their active duty soldiers to do these frontline attacks, which are just throwing bodies into a meat grinder. This is the one place in Ukraine 
where Russia is focusing its combat power like it did in Luhansk to capture Severodonetsk and Lyschansk. But instead of a twin cities of 230,000 people before the start of the war, this is effort to catch towns that were home to maybe 20 to 30,000 people. And we're almost a month since the start of this big offensive, and they have very little to show for it. Next, we're going to talk about Kherson. Honest assessment. Things aren't going well for Ukraine in Kherson. West and northwest of Kherson City, Russian forces have just about reestablished where the line of conflict was in June. Reports from Operational Command South, while never admitting to lost territory, have repeatedly revealed that Ukraine forces are getting pushed back over the last two weeks. On the other hand, there are signs of supply issues for Russian troops that are starting to appear. Outside of the areas west and northwest of Kherson, Russian military units have become less mobile. They aren't moving around as much. The number of artillery strikes and the locations being targeted is starting to decline. The Russian Air Force is flying more sorties, but they're not venturing into Ukrainian-controlled airspace. They're hitting at the settlements that Ukraine controls on the outside edges. There are early signs that Russian troops are starting to conserve fuel and munitions. Now, there are reports that there's been mass desertion of Russian forces. Those are untrue. We'll talk more about what a counteroffensive by Ukraine will look like probably next Sunday. Last, we go to Odessa, Crimea, and the Black Sea. Russia launched punitive strikes on the seaside resort town of Zatoka. This town has been attacked 11 times since the start of the war in missile strikes. Russia continues to claim that the hotels in this little seaside resort are filled with Ukrainian soldiers and foreign mercenaries. I'm going to move to assessment for a moment. Even if this was true, at some point, it would be insanity to keep military assets in a place that is cut off from the rest of Ukraine and is repeatedly attacked. Western intelligence agencies validated our analysts' August 10th assessment of the attack on the Saki Naval Air Base. Over 50% of the aircraft were damaged or destroyed, according to Western intelligence sources, late this week. There were 43 to 46 aircraft on the field, according to satellite images taken four hours before the attack. Our analysis of available satellite images in the hours after the attack determined that 14 airplanes were destroyed or visibly damaged. And our team concluded that 20 to 25 airplanes and helicopters were just too close to the blast radius to have survived unscathed. Our team concluded that 20 to 25 airplanes and helicopters were too close to the blast radius to have survived. And people smarter than us have reached the same conclusion. The drone strikes that happened on the 19th of the administrative headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet in Sevastopol was a psychological victory. Ukraine is likely using $10,000 consumer drones that they've bought online from China and modified them to become combat UAVs. Videos from the attack on the Black Fleet Seat headquarters show that the drone was identical to one that was used to strike a Russian oil refinery on June 22nd. Our analysts don't believe the drone was shot down based on videos and pictures. They believe it reached its intended target and exploded as designed. Is this having a psychological impact? Well, tourism is down 50% in Crimea 
since the Saki Air Base attack. And not all victories in war are kinetic. I am sure that in 1942, after the Doolittle Raid bombed Tokyo, that Japanese leaders told their people, no big deal. This is just a few planes. They can't do this on any kind of scale. We know how that eventually turned out. And that leads us to our next story. Number three. Russia is struggling to provide replacement troops in Ukraine. Professional soldiers and mercenaries are becoming increasingly vocal about the condition and training of replacement troops that are arriving in newly formed units. Within the Donbass, the biggest complaints are coming from separatist militias of the Luhansk People's Republic. Frustrated conscripts made a video showing the equipment they had been issued. One conscript was given no boots, torn pants, no helmet, and no body armor. Another conscript showed how the backpack they were issued had so much dry rot from improper storage, it was literally crumbling apart. And a third conscript showed that the boots they had been issued had worn soles, were poorly repaired, and had no waterproofing. An officer appealed at the end of the video for body armor, wet weather gear, and boots for his troops. Oleg Zarev, who was a Ukrainian official, he is now a wanted criminal in Ukraine, and was part of the initial Donetsk People's Republic government. He left in 2015 because he felt that the DNR was violating the Minsk II agreements, wrote on his Telegram account, Military officers write that there are not enough people at the front, but there are no men left in Donetsk and Luhansk. There is no one to call. Many enterprises have stopped, what he means is businesses, due to the fact that all the men are at the front. Poor Donbass. On August 8th, we shared a report by the exiled Luhansk administrative and military governor, Sergei Haidai, that Russia occupation officials in the Oblast were forced conscripting coal miners. Here's his quote. Almost everyone who could be sent to the front from the mines of these settlements was already mobilized at the beginning of the invasion. Now each summons is another step to the complete shutdown of the enterprises, mines. There are not enough people. Everyone knows that they don't come back from the front. So they learn new specialties, work part-time, go on additional shifts. So the remaining coal miners are trying to make themselves valuable to the point that they won't be force conscripted into the Luantz People's Republic militia. Nine days after Haidai wrote that, a Luantz People's Republic battalion staff commander made a video appealing for equipment and the condition of his mobilized reservists that had arrived in his unit. Here is what he had to write. One battalion was given 18 armored vests, 18. And for your understanding, these are the people who couldn't run away from the commandant patrols when mobilization was announced. These are people with chronic diseases. These are minors. Everyone with professional diseases, they are asked to do the impossible. They are demanded to maneuver 20 kilometers in two hours. There are no vehicles in the battalion at all. We are on self-provision. That means they're having to buy their own equipment. We are begging for communication methods. That means radios. 
The boys are holding with their last effort. I have riots in these battalions. They say to me, we are not going. We won't go. The treatment is such that, of course, everyone feels sorry for us. Thank God groceries and fuel still arrive. It's not lost on us that Sergei Haidai, who is a very reliable source for information, makes the claim that coal miners are being force conscripted. And we know that the training program, and I'm doing training with air quotes, is seven days. Nine days after Haidai makes this claim, we have a Luance People's Republic Battalion Staff Commander going, I have a bunch of sick coal miners that just showed up with no equipment. This makes a really strong statement about what is happening in the Second Army Corps uh, of the Luhansk People's Republic. Pro-Russian mill blogger Mers also reported forced mobilization and the gutting of critical services and industries to send men to the front lines. Mers is a pseudonym, a, a code name. He was arrested because of his doom posting on LiveJournal. Uh, he didn't post anything for about three weeks, but he is starting to post again. And this is what he had to say. In the Luhansk People's Republic recently, they started taking ambulance drivers to the army. The cost of paper, that's bribes, has jumped to 100,000 rubles. So you could bribe your way out of serving in the military during these force mobilizations. But you have to understand this. If you paid a 30,000 ruble bribe back in June, you now have to pay a 100,000 ruble bribe here in August for this round of force mobilization. Now, 100,000 rubles is about $1,650 if we use the official exchange rate from Moscow. For the average resident in Luhansk or Donetsk, that's about two months' salary. He continues to write, at the DPR of those replacements, so Donetsk People's Republic arrived into a unit, one of them, out of them all, of those who turned out to be fit fighters, were just two. Some of those who arrived were convalescents. They still had rods in their injured limbs. One of them, the recruiters took from a psychological care facility. I want to note, he didn't word it that way. He used a very derogatory term, quickly becoming clear, and he was sent back. On August 14, an LNR unit rebelled and refused to continue to fight in the Donetsk People's Republic. The video statement they made is shocking. There are a few unit members who were visibly malnourished or very ill. They're wearing poorly fitting and torn uniforms if they had any to wear. And the ones that had boots, they were visibly in poor condition. Recruiting efforts for private military company Wagner Group aren't going much better. In July, the first penal unit from St. Petersburg, prison number six, arrived in Ukraine. Out of those 200 members of this convict group, only two were still alive or uninjured as of August 10. Professional mercenaries in Wagner refused to fight with the penal units due to their poor training, low quality, and disregard for command structure. Wagner is scrambling to reconfigure their units so individuals recruited from prison aren't in hybrid units with professional mercenaries. The general staff of the Armed Forces Ukraine reported that reservists and volunteers are complaining online that they aren't getting paid or the equipment that they were promised when they signed up to fight in Ukraine.
contract conscripts in the Russian military are claiming they're only getting seven days of training on the Russian-Ukraine border. They report they're receiving disused uniforms, some of them with visible stains on them, that they were given rusty weapons, and that part of their training was learning how to fix them themselves. And from there, they went straight to the trenches. Volunteers are told they're not employed by the Russian Ministry of Defense, but they are partisans. That's an added benefit for the Kremlin because their deaths don't count in official casualty statistics. The volunteers aren't fighting for the Ministry of Defense. They're fighting for a quasi-organization run by a Russian politician in the Duma. And this has significant legal implications, potentially making the volunteer units illegal combatants under international law without protection from the Geneva Convention. And due to the poor equipment, many volunteers report they have to turn to looting. And under international law, as illegal combatants, volunteer units are at the mercy of their captors if they're caught committing a war crime. And looting is considered a war crime. Another common complaint in Russia is volunteers and regular Russian military families are not being paid their survivor benefits. There was a news story a couple of weeks back about a family buying a brand new lotta, using the money from their son's death, which was derided outside of Russia. But many families are getting nothing beyond burial costs. Russia is moving forward with asking 85 districts to form volunteer battalions to create the third army corps. But so far, only 20 regions have produced about 40 groups of volunteers, but fewer in numbers that could be called a battalion. A battalion typically has 800 to 1,200 members. In some districts, the volunteer units are barely fielding a platoon, with 50 volunteers being sent to the training. Each district is responsible for equipping and paying its volunteers. And in wealthy districts, salaries are as high as 300,000 rubles a month. That's about $5,000. While in other regions, the pay could be as low as 100,000 rubles. For the newly formed volunteer battalions, the Kremlin claims they will be attached to the Ministry of Defense. However, these are the same claims that were made to other contract soldiers. Moscow's goal is to muster 34,000 recruits that will undergo the same simplified training and receive low-grade equipment. For many, they will arrive in Ukraine at the start of mud season or worse, when the first snow is beginning to fall. Winter combat in Arctic conditions is not something you learn in a week. Now, let's be fair. The situation isn't much better for Ukraine, but that isn't quite a fair comparison. On February 22nd, 2022, many believe that Russia was the world's second most powerful military with an army of up to 3 million people. Our team had reported a year before the invasion that Russia's conventional military was a regional power at best. We had assessed it was poorly equipped and trained with most using aged equipment. And we had concluded that the nation would be irrelevant on the world stage if Russia did not have a nuclear arsenal. It's critical not to rewrite history to fit a narrative. It is undeniable. Western weapons have altered the course of the war, but Ukraine repelled Russia from Kiev, Chernihiv, Sumy, and Kharkiv on its own back in March. Six months later, 
The world's second most powerful military is sending 45 to 50-year-old volunteers to fight an attritional war in places where casualty rates can be as high as 30% a month. In our final assessment, it's an embarrassment that the Russian military has had to turn to criminals, mercenaries, and middle-aged men desperate for a paycheck to fill their ranks. And it is a disgrace that they are receiving only a week of training and can't even be adequately equipped. The narrative is Ukraine is a nation riddled with corruption and incompetence. And yet, half a year later, the second most powerful military on the planet controls 21% of its neighbor. Ukraine and its military have demonstrated many traits since February, but incompetence and corruption have not been two of them. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Number two. That leads us to our next story, the apparent assassination of Daria Dugina. Open this up with a disclaimer. This is a hot take. The incident happened less than 12 hours ago. So I, David Obelts, chief content officer of Malcontent News, own this section. This is all my opinion and assessment. What do we know? Diana Dugina, she was 30 years old. She was returning for what has been described as a literature and music festival that was hosted by her father, Alexander Dugan. She was a journalist and analyst for Zargrad and Russia Today, both Russian state media TV outlets. She graduated from the University of Moscow with a degree in philosophy, where her father was the head of the program until 2014. She was sanctioned by the West in 2022 for being a propagandist. She has called Ukrainian subhuman, advocated genocide, and simultaneously claimed there was no such thing as Ukrainian culture while calling for the destruction of Ukrainian culture. She was driving her father's SUV, and allegedly Alexander Dugan was supposed to be in the vehicle. It is reported he made a last-minute decision to go with someone else. Dugina was about 10 minutes into her drive back to Moscow. The SUV exploded and was traveling at highway speed at the time. It crashed, completely engulfed in flames. Dugina's father reportedly witnessed the explosion, and a video of the scene shows him appearing shocked and appalled. Both have deep connections to the Kremlin and Putin's inner circle. Both are very polarizing figures. Within the circles that support them, the following could be called fanatical. Outside of the circle, detractors within Russia quietly view Alexander Dugin with the same disdain once directed at the infamous monk Rasputin. It is almost certain that Dugin was the target and Dugina was collateral damage. Dugin has been called the 21st century Rasputin. He's also been called Putin's brain. He wrote the 1997 book, Foundations of Geopolitics, which many view as the roadmap of Russia's nationalist and expansionist goals. It is alleged he was an anti-communist and open Nazi in the early 1980s, dabbled a little bit in the occult. He identifies today as a conservative 
and a Stalinist. He is the architect behind the Russian government's efforts to reframe Stalin as a hero and supporter of freedom. That effort started in 2011. Hot take. The only reason Stalin isn't remembered with the same disdain as Adolf Hitler is that victors get to write the history. Both were monsters, both responsible for the deaths of millions of people. He recently stated that physics, chemistry, and other science is the work of the devil. He has called for the destruction of the entire internet because no good has come from it. Dugan is the architect of the Eurasia movement, which calls for the restoration of the former Russian Empire borders. That would include most of Eastern Europe, Finland, parts of Germany. Ironically, those borders would also mean that large areas of territory, like in Siberia, would be returned to China and Japan. However, Dugan argues because they are inferior races, there is no reason to return that territory. He is deeply connected to the Russian Orthodox Church, which views itself as the rightful heirs to a restored Eurasia. Dugan is connected to the private military company Wagner Group, the efforts to interfere with the 2016 United States elections, and has met with United States political leaders and presidential advisors aligned with his politics, such as Steve Bannon in 2018. Russian state media has already turned Dugina into a martyr. Russian media claims that Ukraine was behind the blast, and this was a targeted assassination. Kiev has denied any involvement. Russia's state media agency Zargrad stated Kiev will shudder and called for attacks on decision-making centers, which Russia has avoided up to this point. Kiev is taking these threats seriously. They have told government workers to work from home for all of next week. And Russia has partially closed the airspace in three regions that border Ukraine. Now, this may be because of ongoing drone attacks that are happening in that area. This could be happening because of planned attacks that were already in play for August 24, which is Ukrainian Independence Day. So there may not be a connection to that. Hot takes and conclusions. It's highly unlikely outsiders could get this close to Dugan and Dugina. Even if Ukraine had this level of capability or one of their allies, why would they not target high-profile political figures that have visited Ukraine in the eastern parts or senior military officers in Crimea? Dugan and Dugina have fanatical supporters, but a list of enemies that was equally long. Within the Kremlin and Russian oligarchs, there is some resistance to the war. When we ask ourselves the question, or should I say when I ask myself the question, who benefits the most from Dugina's death? I come to a very chilling conclusion. Alexander Dugan. Politically, he had the most to gain in his daughter's death. Putin and the Kremlin have refused to formally declare war and mobilize the entire Russian military. Russia is having significant difficulty in recruiting soldiers to fight in Ukraine. And since July 3rd, Russia really hasn't made any progress. The front is, for the most part, frozen. Dugina is a martyr, and Russia's state media is now calling for total war. I am not saying Dugan had his daughter killed to advance his political goals, but her death will serve as fuel to strengthen the nationalist Eurasian movement that he started. 
Her death could lead to a short-term boost in the recruitment of all volunteers to fight in Ukraine and has probably created arguments within the Kremlin to move to total war. There's one thing I believe. This will serve as an excuse for a series of terror attacks against Ukrainian civilians and their infrastructure in the days to come. And that leads us to our final section. Number one. Russia can't win. I'm asked all the time, is Russia winning the war? And my response when I'm asked this question is, define win. If we define win as the goals established by the Kremlin on February 23rd, goals that Alexander Dugan reportedly contributed to and was one of the writers of Putin's speech, then this is how winning is defined. Stop NATO expansion, replace the government in Kyiv with pro-Russian and anti-NATO, anti-European Union leadership, demilitarize Ukraine, expose the neo-Nazis leaders in charge of Ukraine, including President Zelensky, who is Jewish, and denazify the country. Expose to the world Ukraine's secret nuclear weapons program. Expose to the world Ukraine's biolabs that were put in place by the United States and NATO. Take total control of the country and accomplish this in a matter of weeks as liberators of the suffering Ukrainian people. Russia is not winning and has not achieved a single goal established on February 23rd. And Russia can't win. It's impossible. On April 18, our team wrote the following assessment. We maintain that Russia can overwhelm Ukrainian forces in the Donbass in a coordinated attack along all axes. The second phase of the war has started, but Ukrainian forces have held and are making gains east of Kharkiv. Even if Russia were to secure the Donbass region, they lack the personnel or resources to hold territorial gains. The region's occupation would require up to 130,000 troops on regular rotation, implementing authoritarian rule, further fueling an insurgency. It is more likely that Russia has entered into an extended war of attrition designed to grind Ukrainian forces down. As the chief content officer four months later, I think our analyst's assessment has aged very well, but I'll admit I'm probably a little biased. And this is why Russia can't win. The Kremlin's belief that Ukrainians would throw flowers at their feet was a fantasy. We know that now. When Western military planners consider the number of boots on the ground needed to control an area under military occupation, they use a formula of one soldier skilled in occupation and administration for every 50 citizens. Being an occupier requires a different skill set than being a soldier. Now, Ukraine had 42 million people at the start of the war. 10 million are displaced. 6 million of those have fled the country. To control 32 million people, using that formula, Russia needs 640,000 soldiers in Ukraine post-war. And those soldiers are going to require regular rotation. You're going to have to bring troops in. You're going to have to pull troops out. This is going to require an active duty force of 1.5 million soldiers, to rotate in and out of Ukraine and maintain a force strength to deal with a potential second front, to deal in case with something else were to happen. Without a formal declaration of war and general mobilization, this is impossible. 
If you define winning simply as square kilometers captured, Russia is winning and is still winning. Those gains are being achieved through World War II tactics. Destroy an area with artillery and rockets until there is nothing left to defend, advance into the rubble. That isn't a strategy of a liberator. That is the strategy of a country with genocidal intentions. And even pro-Russian reporters and mill bloggers are beginning to question Russia's treatment of citizens in the liberated territories, or what Russia calls the liberated territories, in Lyman, Lyshansk, Severodonetsk, and most of Mariupol. Water, sewer, electricity, natural gas, and thermal plants for winter heat have not been repaired. Outside of Mariupol, there have been no repair efforts. From Kherson to Severodonetsk, food has become more scarce and a lot more expensive, and jobs are hard to find because they're not allowing stores in these areas to sell food that is coming from Ukraine. They are bringing food in from Russia and charging an absorbent markup for those food. Pro-Russian social media account Rybar pointed out all of this this weekend, and that winter is coming, and Russian occupation leaders have not delivered on any of the promises to repair infrastructure and prepare for coming cold weather. Rybar's concern is the liberated territories will become an empty and barren wasteland this winter, and the pro-Russian people that stuck around, that believed they were being liberated, will freeze, suffer, and eventually just turn into their enemies. But that brings us back to Alexander Dugan and his Eurasian vision. There is no place at the table for the Ukrainian people in Russia's vision of the new world order. Unless Russia declares war, does a total mobilization of the Russian military and accepts that they will have to be in a war economy for the next five to 10 years, they can't win. They may grind Ukraine to dust, but that wasn't the original goal. At least that wasn't the original goal that they said out loud. I want to thank you for listening and your ongoing support. Malcontent News was founded in 2016 with a commitment to provide fact-based reporting. This morning when I came into the studio, our social media manager told me we are 34th for daily news on Apple in the United States, according to Chartable. If you had told me last week we would have the second most listened to daily podcast dedicated to the Russian-Ukraine war, I would have called you crazy. And yet, here we are. Malcontent News exists thanks to our patrons through small donations and grants. We try not to work with advertisers. Without your support, we would not be able to provide these resources. Thank you for listening today. Be safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.